Chasing Cosby contains descriptions of violence, sexual content, and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. It's 1991, and Bill Cosby is one of the most famous and powerful actors and entertainers in the world. In November, he's on the Larry King Live show promoting a brand new autobiography called Childhood and sharing some of his favorite jokes. The old story was, if you took a little in. drop, it was on the head of a pin. pin. That's right. Drop and it, it in, in the Coca-Cola. Drink. Don't I, matter. It doesn't make it. And the girl would drink it and she's sure. Hello, America. <laughs> Cosby's doing his Spanish fly routine for Larry King, one which he's performed on stage since the 1960s. In it, Cosby jokes with the audience about slipping an aphrodisiac into a woman's drink, a drug that renders her helpless after a couple of sips. You know anything about Spanish fly? No, tell me about it. Well, there's this girl, Crazy Mary. You put some in her drink, man. She... <laughs> Go to a party, see five girls standing alone. Boy, if I had a whole jug of Spanish fly, I'd light that corner up over there. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the Spanish fly routine back then, and the media didn't pay much attention to it either. By the time he was telling the joke to Larry King... Cosby had written best-selling books about parenthood and made the world laugh with family-friendly comedy routines. He was a humanitarian and philanthropist who had donated millions to charities and colleges alike. And his portrayal of Dr. Cliff Huxtable on The Cosby Show had earned him the warm and fuzzy moniker of America's Dad. Cosby's long, seemingly happy marriage to his wife Camille only added luster to a picture-perfect image of a devoted husband and father. There was never a hint, not even a whisper, that he wasn't who he seemed to be. But that Spanish fly routine was there, hiding in plain sight, a pinprick detail in the broad tapestry of his career all this time. Cosby talking about slipping drugs into women's drinks. If we'd only known back then, it wasn't just a joke. It was only later that we learned Bill Cosby had been leading a double life cultivating friendships with young women by promising them mentorship and connections. For nearly half a century, he groomed them and their families, building relationships and gaining their trust before drugging and sexually assaulting them. Bill Cosby often said, I love you as if you were my daughter. I care about you as if you were my child. I trusted him. At that time in 65, I was 17. He said, this will help you relax. I remember one sip. He was right on top of me, two inches from my face when I went unconscious. I remember him forcing himself in my mouth. I got up and there was blood running down my legs because he sodomized me. We're here to speak the truth. We've finally let the world know what kind of human being Bill Cosby is. When I saw him in that courtroom, I just wanted to jump over and say, why? Why did you do this to me, Mr. Cosby? My name is Tamara Green. My name is Shalon Lasha. Stacey Pinkerton. Therese Serenese. Lily Bernard. Sonny Wells. Lisa Lott Lublin. Becky Cooper. P.J. Maston. Janice Baker-Kinney. Heidi Thomas. Beth Ferrier. Jennifer Kaya Thompson. Andrea Constant. I was drugged and sexually assaulted. Drugged and sexually assaulted. Sexually assaulted. Assaulted by Bill Cosby. I am. I am. I am. I am a survivor. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan. And this 
is Chasing Cosby. Episode 1, America's Dad. Before we dive into our story, let me introduce myself. I'm an investigative journalist, and I live outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. One day in January 2005, a woman named Andrea Constand went to the police and said Bill Cosby had drugged and assaulted her. When I first heard Andrea's account, I was skeptical. But as I dug into the details of her story for the Philadelphia Daily News, where I was working at the time, I came to believe Andrea. And I've stayed with her story for the past 15 years. I was a big Cosby fan when this all began. The Cosby Show debuted my senior year in high school, the same year my older brother died. My mother was paralyzed with grief, which she never really recovered from before she died 10 years later. And my father had all he could handle trying to hold the family together while juggling the demands of a job that took him out of town several nights a week. I could relate to the on-screen relationship between Cliff and Theo Huxtable because I'd watched my father and brother engage in similar battles throughout my childhood. The Cosby Show was an escape for me, yet it also felt real because I knew Cosby had based the show on his own family. That image I had of Bill Cosby as the easygoing Cliff Huxtable was about to come crashing down. The same year Andrea Constand went to police, 13 other women came forward saying Cosby assaulted them or attempted to do so. I covered this case for the Philadelphia Daily News. Many of my stories landed with a splash, and I made the rounds, doing spots on Greta Van Susteren's and Dan Abrams' shows. My reporting caught the eye of People magazine, where I worked on a story about Cosby's accusers that ran in 2006. But then things went quiet, and Cosby seemed unscathed. It would take another decade, a viral video, an unsealed deposition, and more than 60 accusers before he would be charged for his crimes. Cosby is now behind bars and maintains his innocence. He has in the past denied accusations of drugging and sexual assault, and through a spokesman, said he had no comment to offer on this podcast. But I still have so many questions. How could someone who's done so much good do so much evil at the same time? How many people knew what Cosby was doing and stayed quiet? Why is there such a visceral distrust of women who say they've been sexually assaulted? Why did the scandal take hold in 2014, but not in 2005? And how, in the end, did victims, lawyers, journalists, and one angry young comedian finally bring him down? Let's go back and begin this story in the Richard Allen Homes, a low-income housing project in North Philadelphia where Cosby spent much of his childhood. William Henry Cosby was born on July 12, 1937, to Anna and William Cosby. I uh, started out as a child and uh, grew up in the streets of Philadelphia playing street football and everything in a marvelous time. Cosby's mother worked 12 hours a day as a cleaning lady to put food on the table. His father was an alcoholic who couldn't hold down a job. From age one to seven, because of my father, I thought my name was Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know your father's gonna kill you. It's just something about the way they talk to you. You know, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. Though short on money, Anna Cosby wants the best for her four sons, 
trying to instill in them a passion for education. Kazi plays sports, but he's never a star student. So I quit high school at age 19. <laughs> Another two years, I would have graduated. When he's a junior at Germantown High, Cosby drops out of school and gets a job working at a shoe repair store. Then he enlists in the Navy. Cosby serves four years, providing medical care for service members and their families. In the Navy, he earns his high school equivalency degree and decides he wants to go to Temple University in Philadelphia. Cosby gets a track scholarship to help pay for tuition, and he begins bartending at the cellar. From all accounts, Cosby is, at this time, pretty straight-laced. He tries beer as a teenager, but doesn't like losing control, so he doesn't drink. Cosby says he doesn't do drugs, either. He would later release an album for kids that pushes this message. No matter who it is or what it is, if somebody offers you pills or something like that, you're going to say what? No. no! No, thank you. At the bar, his ability to weave a funny tale is beginning to pay off. Cosby begins trying out new routines on his customers. Beer drinkers are really different people because they drink a lot of beer, and the beer does not go here. It goes in one leg. And when that leg fills up, then they have to take it to the john, see? In 1962, at age 24, Cosby begins doing stand-up at the Gaslight Cafe in New York City's Greenwich Village. That's where he catches the attention of big TV personalities, like Jack Parr, who hosted a Friday night variety show. Once in a great while, a young comedian comes along who establishes himself in record time. Such a comedian is Bill Cosby. Thank you. When it becomes too hard to juggle college and his burgeoning career as a comic, Cosby drops out of Temple and begins to perform full-time at the Gaslight and the Bitter End. In 1963, while performing in Washington, D.C., Cosby meets Camille Hanks. They fall in love and marry a year later. There's one problem when you get married to a Catholic. You're going to have a lot of children. And I know we're going to have a lot of children because my wife's Catholic and I'm Protestant with terrible rhythm. <laughs> The next big break for Bill Cosby comes when he gets cast as Alexander Scotty Scott in the 1965 secret agent TV show, I Spy. Kids you hired. What did you tell him? Why? He thinks we're spies. I told him that. I Spy is filmed in Los Angeles. In it, Cosby becomes the first African-American man to play a lead role in a dramatic television series. He earns three Emmy Awards. And the winner is. And the winner is. That was your line. Bill Cosby and I Spy. After I Spy Raps in 1968, Cosby lands his own NBC sitcom called The Bill Cosby Show. He plays a gym teacher at Richard Allen Holmes High, a fictional school Cosby named after the Philadelphia housing project where he grew up. Cosby's star continues to rise. He lands spots in movies, commercials, and more television shows. Starring the most popular personality in America today, Bill Cosby. Mother, Jugs, and Speed. For always knowing that we love Jell-O pudding, here's to mine. Hey, hey, hey. 
And they're off the new television season out of the gates and running, and everybody is keeping an eye on the runaway ratings winner from last year. It is, of course, The Cosby Show. More than 20 million homes tune into this program every Thursday night. On The Cosby Show, which debuts in 1984, Bill plays Cliff Huxtable, a patient, wise, and wholesome family man and doctor. The Cosby Show breaks boundaries, portraying an upper-middle-class black family on network TV for the first time. It's also wildly popular, the number one rated television show for five consecutive seasons. And he's starring in the number one sitcom on television. And it is the best, The Cosby Show, every Thursday night at 8 o'clock on NBC. Here he is, Bill Cosby. The TV dad that we all wish that we had. Please welcome Mr. Bill Cosby. And the public is saying, Yes, we will look at at a black family. We will look at a good sitcom regardless of what color. But it's still the number one program, even in reruns. And the reason for it is because people feel good watching that program. His long-running hit changed the dynamics of race in America. It can be traced all the way to the White House. By 2003, Cosby has landed a string of honorary degrees and awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. As a gifted comedian, actor, and author, Bill Cosby has entertained millions around the world with his wit, creativity, and warmth. Bill Cosby's good-natured humor has always appealed to our common humanity, helping to bring people together through laughter. The United States proudly honors this truly outstanding American. Even with all this success, Cosby hasn't forgotten his Philadelphia roots. He's a big booster for Temple. He sits on the board of trustees and is close with the coach of the women's basketball team, Dawn Staley. One day at a game, a donor introduces him to a 29-year-old woman from Toronto, Canada. At six feet tall, Andrea Constand is striking with long, curly, reddish-brown hair. Andrea is director of operations for the Temple women's basketball team. But she's been playing basketball since she was little. You know, I started playing basketball when I was about 13 years old. I played in just leagues around Toronto and eventually getting a scholarship to the University of Arizona. Here's Andrea's mom, Gianna Constand. Andrea was a very energetic child. She kept everybody on her toes. Very, very athletic always had a ball in her hand, very truthful little girl, very sensitive, and always aiming to win at everything that she did. In high school, Andrea was one of the top players her age in Canada and was recruited to play ball by more than 50 American colleges. She chose the University of Arizona and has one goal after graduating college, to play professional basketball. I tried out for several teams and I didn't make it, but I ended up still in the realm of sports at Temple University. Which brings us back to Bill Cosby. Though he never actually graduated, Cosby's one of Temple's most famous students, and he's a popular speaker at Temple commencement ceremonies. I'm going to help you change the world just by telling you, pay off your student loan. (laughs) Even if you don't have a job, pay it off. Not long after they meet, 
Cosby calls Andrea and asks some questions about the women's team. They strike up a friendship. When they meet, Cosby is 65, 36 years Andrea's senior. Our conversations were so much built around mentorship and, you know, him trying to help me with things. I, I was never really concerned or I never had a fear of being alone with him. You should know that the next part of our story is pretty intense. The details come from testimony that Andrea would later give in court. In 2004, after three years of working at Temple, Andrea is ready for a career change. She wants to return to Toronto to become a masseuse like her father. But Andrea is not sure how to share the news with her boss, Don Staley. So one cold January day, she calls her friend and mentor for advice, Bill Cosby. He invites her to his home, a 6,000-square-foot mansion north of Philadelphia. There was nothing unusual about this invitation. Andrea had been to his home before, alone and with others. When she gets there around 8.45 p.m., Andrea shares her concerns about leaving the job with Cosby. He offers her three little blue pills to relax. They're an herbal medication, he says. Andrea takes the pills because she trusts him. Cosby knows Andrea only takes homeopathic remedies because they'd spoken about it many times before. Soon after she takes the pills, Andrea's knees begin to shake. She starts feeling dizzy and weak, and her legs are rubbery. She tells Cosby she doesn't feel well. Andrea can't walk on her own, so he guides her to a sofa, lays her down. She's in and out of consciousness during this time, but she does remember this. Cosby sexually assaults her. Andrea is paralyzed, unable to move or speak, unable to defend herself. After the assault, Andrea remembers slipping into a drugged sleep. When she awakes, it's the morning. Confused, Andrea gets up and walks into the kitchen, where she sees Bill Cosby wearing a bathrobe. Andrea manages to leave the house, gets into her car, and drives home. Andrea doesn't know who to turn to, so she doesn't mention the assault to anyone. Cosby would later maintain that what happened between them was consensual, but what Cosby has done eats away at her every single day. All the traumas in most of our life experiences really all dwell within us. They live in our subconscious, and unfortunately for me, I was really never the same Andrea that I was years prior. I had to realize that I was broken, and how was I going to put myself back together? Kristen Hauser works for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center and the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. After a sexual assault, victims go through a, a range of emotions. Am I trusting my memory? Did that really happen? Is it as bad as it feels? Then worrying about, will it happen again? Am I still safe? Will people believe me if I tell them what happened? Trying to make sense that somebody else would hurt you in this way is, is a really difficult thing to do, so victims often turn inward. For the first few months after the assault, Andrea stays in Philadelphia in a daze, doing her job and occasionally communicating with Cosby. Eventually, she leaves Temple 
and moves back to Toronto into her parents' house to go to massage therapy school. She's close with her mom, Gianna, and Gianna notices right away something isn't right with her daughter. We just didn't know what was going on. There were many changes that my husband and I noticed, as well as her sister. She was very dislocated from family. She didn't want to go out with her friends. And then she was screaming in her sleep. Here's Andrea. The nightmares were about other women getting assaulted and me not saying or doing anything about it. And I didn't want anybody else to have to experience what I experienced. It was a very uncomfortable time in that year after what had happened to me. But at a certain point, I realized that this was going to either take me down or it was going to take my perpetrator down. On the morning of January 13th, 2005, Andrea wakes up sobbing from another terrifying dream. I just knew that what was happening inside me, I couldn't hold in any longer. Andrea decides to tell her mother what Cosby has done. She's already left for work, so Andrea calls her cell. She was like crying in in some kind of a frenzy. She started to tell me that Bill Cosby had drugged her and assaulted her. She just kept sort of screaming to me, you know, Mommy, he did this, he did this to me. I was on the highway, so I pulled over And I said to Andrea, I said, Mom believes what you're saying. I was very, very angry. And I told Andrea, I said, Andrea, I'm going to call him. I want to know, what did he give you? She said, oh, Mom, it's dangerous. I'm afraid. And I said, well, if you don't give me his phone number, Andrea, I said, I'm going to just get on a plane and go there. Andrea reports the assault to the police in Durham, Ontario. But because this happened in the U.S., it's not their jurisdiction. So the Durham cops refer the case to the police in Pennsylvania. But Gianna wants answers now. She gets Cosby's phone number from Andrea, and she calls him and leaves Cosby a message. Three days later, Cosby returns Gianna's call, and Gianna starts firing off her questions. I said, why didn't you call 911? My daughter could have died from what you gave her. He didn't really respond to that. He was repeating everything that he had done to her, trying to suggest that maybe she was aware of it. He said, and mom, she even had an orgasm. He called me mom throughout the whole conversation. I believe I was very shocked. I asked him for the name of the medication, so he told me he would mail me the name of the prescription. He said, mom... I'm a very sick man. I said, yes, you are. Cosby says he'll call back to check in on Andrea. So Gianna hangs up the phone. She later testifies about the details of what Cosby told her in this call in criminal proceedings. Gianna's son-in-law is a detective. She asks him and the police department if she should record the call when Cosby calls back. They say she should. So Gianna buys a simple tape recorder and awaits Cosby's call. When he calls back the next day, she scrambles to get the tape player going. I wanted to get back to you because I I don't want to talk about anything except a a mutual feeling for uh, a friendship and to see if, to just see if 
Um, if, if Andreas, did she graduate from the school? No, not yet, because this is, okay. she's just in her first year. Do you, do you have a beeping going on on your phone? No. No, not at all. I have a parrot. I know, this is a beep. No, no, I have a parrot. I mean, I don't have, no. A parrot? No, if somebody tries to call me, and you know, has, like, it'll, it'll just beep to let me know that somebody's calling, but no, I don't, okay. no. Although Cosby sounds like he knows something is going on with his call, he keeps talking. And he offers something new this time, to finance Andrea's education. Um, it's important because I would be willing to pay for the schooling uh-huh. and uh, whatever, as long as she maintains a 3.0 average, she'll be fine. Though she reveals nothing on the phone, Gianna is stunned. Here's Cosby, and it sounds like he's attempting to buy her silence and her daughter's silence. Gianna doesn't accept Cosby's offer, but she keeps pressing for the name of the little blue pills he gave her daughter. Just one thing, are you really gonna send me the name of that stuff or not? Or were you joking? No, 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 we can, we can talk about what you asked for later. Okay. Okay. Okay, just because I'm concerned, I, I don't know how it affected her and I want to know. I don't think so. I wouldn't even worry about it, Father. I'm serious about this. A little tangent here. At this time in Cosby's career, he's hosting a controversial series of town halls in inner cities across the U.S., where he discusses problems afflicting low-income Black communities. The first town hall takes place after Cosby delivers his infamous pound cake speech in Washington, D.C. in 2004. These are not political criminals. These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola. People getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. Brown versus the Board of Education. These people who march and were hit in the face with rocks and punched in the face to get an education. And we got these knuckleheads walking around, don't want to learn English. After the pound cake speech, outrage from the African-American community comes fast and hard. Some even dubbed the town halls the Blame the Poor Tour. Here's Cosby talking to Oprah. After the speech that you did, and it was uh, labeled controversial, did you regret having done the speech? No, no. What did you think, though, Bill, when everybody really came after you? I thought they were crazy. Back to the Constans in Toronto. Gianna's son-in-law, the detective, recommends Andrea hire an attorney. Once I discussed it with my mother, I started to find ways to protect myself, and that was part of a reason why I put some inquiries out there to find somebody who would help counsel me and protect me. I was absolutely frozen and paralyzed with fear of what was about to happen, but I knew it was the only direction that I could possibly go. Andrea hires two former Pennsylvania prosecutors, Dolores Traiani and Bibi Kivitz. They're not high-profile power brokers, but they strike Andrea as tough and fearless and not the least bit intimidated by going up against America's dad. Here are Dolores and Bibi. We believed everything that she said. Her background was legitimate. Her story was truthful. 
Her details were very concrete. Dolores began trying rape cases in 1975. I was the first woman to try homicide and rape cases in Chester County. And it was a different world then. We didn't have the rape shield law. You know, they, women were asked about their other partners, and men were brought in to say they were promiscuous, and what were they wearing, and did they have a drink? And when I saw what was happening to Andrea, I thought, boy, this is a total step back into time. Bibi began her career in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office in 1979. She was surprised that the prosecutor was raising questions about aspects of Andrea's story. I was a prosecutor for six years and specialized in sexual assault crimes. Often victims still have contact with their accusers after the fact. Sometimes that's because it's a family member. Sometimes it's because it was an acquaintance. Sometimes, as in Andrea's case, not only had Cosby acted as a friend and mentor, but he was also a big contributor to Temple. If he was funding the program and he was contacting her for information about a game, location, or score, as an employee, she had an obligation to return his calls. You know, it's just normal for victims to sometimes have contact with the offender after the fact. We're live here in Cheltenham, Montgomery County. Information has been forwarded to Cheltenham authorities about an allegation being made by a Canadian woman that Mr. Cosby fondled her at his residence here. Cosby hires a low-key but well-respected Philadelphia lawyer named Walter Phillips to represent him. Walter Phillips, in a statement, says this is a bizarre allegation being made one year after the fact. You can be certain it will be vigorously defended in court. Soon after Andrea and Cosby lawyer up, the media gets wind of the allegations. Andrea finds reporters banging down her door in Toronto. A National Enquirer reporter pretends he's a flower delivery man. He asks a few questions and calls it an exclusive interview. Another reporter ambushes Andrea's parents and uses their comments in a story that identifies Andrea by name and includes her photo without her permission. We were the victims of a person who came to our door sounding like they were going to console us, not letting us know that they were going to be interviewing in any way. It was very uncomfortable. Here's Kristen Hauser again from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Victim privacy and anonymity is often very important to victims because they don't trust other people. We have seen ample evidence of people being stalked, terrorized, having their private homes camped out, friends and neighbors turning against them, fallout in families. There are so many unexpected turns that a story can take if somebody's not prepared for it. On January 27, 2005, a copy of the police report stating Andrea's full name appears on the website for the TV show Celebrity Justice. The report is only online for 10 minutes, but it doesn't matter. Andrea's name and image are soon everywhere, again, without her permission. It was just very much a turning point of a whole new life with the media. And it was really quite a shocker for me and my family. You know, I was just so distraught at that time. And I think it was just inappropriate to be re-victimized. And I did not know what the future held. The next major character in our story is Bruce Castor. He's the district attorney in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And it's his job to decide whether or not there is enough evidence to press criminal charges against Bill Cosby. Back then, Castor was a familiar figure to Pennsylvania reporters like me. 
He was a bulldog, and he wasn't afraid to take on big, high-profile cases. I'd thought the Bill Cosby case would be a natural one for him to latch onto. But after Cosby had been interviewed by detectives, Castor holds a press conference. In it, he sounds pretty skeptical about the details of Andrea's story. This is a district attorney who sure does not sound like he's going to file any charges against Bill Cosby. Let's listen. I think that failing to disclose in a timely manner and contacts with the alleged perpetrator after the event are factors that weigh in favor of Mr. Cosby. I was working for the Philadelphia Daily News at the time and was ready to file my first exclusive story about the case. I broke the news that Andrea's attorneys had evidence in the form of recorded phone calls that proved Andrea was telling the truth about the January 2004 assault. After my story runs, Celebrity Justice posts an article online. The story cites sources connected with Bill Cosby. Today, Celebrity Justice has a story claiming that the accuser's mother may have tried to extort money from Cosby in exchange for keeping the alleged incident a secret. They say at least one of those conversations also may have been taped. I responded with another Philadelphia Daily News story and talked about it on Greta Van Susteren's On the Record. Nicole Egan broke the story for the Philadelphia Daily News. She joins us now from Philadelphia. Nicole, what's the story that you broke today? Well, what I reported today was that in a telephone conversation with Bill Cosby after the Canadian woman went to authorities, that he made an offer of financial compensation to the victim and her family, but that they never um, took him up on it. I was talking to longtime radio host Michael Smirkanish when Bruce Castor called into the show. Castor was saying it was a weak case, and why did she wait so long to come forward? I believe that in a moment I'm going to be able to get Bruce Castor on the program. This is the DA, Montgomery County District Attorney Bruce Castor. Bruce, you listening to this? Yes, I am. This is utter nonsense, what, uh, what Nikki said about characterizing how, I, how I'm viewing the case. I was startled to hear his voice on the line. It was clear the DA was paying close attention to my stories and wasn't happy about them. Smirkanish later went on Greta Van Susteren's show to discuss what happened when Castor called in. Welcome, Michael. What was the occasion that he happened to do your radio show? Oftentimes, he's an invited guest. In this particular instance, he just called in unsolicited because Nicole Wisen C. Egan was my guest, and he wanted to respond to her. Did he talk about the, the tapes? He mentioned uh, to me only to stay away from that subject because one gets in trouble if one starts talking about uh, unauthorized wiretaps. So I stayed clear of the subject, Greta. All right, did he tip you off when he's going to make a decision whether or not to bring charges? I think it'll come to a, a conclusion relatively soon. According to Smirkanish, Castor had called the phone conversations that Gianna recorded unauthorized wiretaps. It was a clue to what was to come, and there was no way I was going to back down now. I was close to publishing another explosive story. And if I didn't keep reporting the truth, who would? Coming up on the next episode of Chasing Cosby. In 1969 and 70, I was 22. He said, do you think cold medicine would help? And I thought, you know, why not? He was on me and in me and over me. I just started to fight with him and holler. And I told him, I said, you better kill me because I will never, never give up tracking you for this. You've had 30 years of opportunity since then to come forward. Why didn't you call the police after the medication wore off? Well, you know, then you feel that no one will believe you. This is the great Bill Cosby. 
Chasing Cosby is reported and hosted by me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. It's a Los Angeles Times podcast and a production of LA Times Studios and Herzog and Company. Our producer is Alexandra Zaslow. Our audio engineers are Angus Spottiswood, Pete Ciarto, Brett Whitlow, Mike Heflin, and Eric Montgomery. Production help from Paige Heimson, Aaron Sands, and Robert Glenn Smith. The original music you heard in this podcast was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Our sound design is by Snap Sound. Thanks to everyone who granted us access to their archives. You can find the list at latimes.com slash Chasing Cosby. Chasing Cosby is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the Los Angeles Times, Mark Herzog and Andy Beckerman for Herzog and Company, and me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. If you're the victim of sexual assault or know someone who is, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673.